Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, kicking off another week. It is Monday, which means we have our good friend Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation joining us in just a little bit of time. And Jack Fonseca from the Campaign Life Coalition will be here to talk about the Million Person March. I should clarify, it seems to have like five different names. At first, it was like the Million Man March and then the Million Person March and then the Million March for Children and the March for a Million Children and the Milching, Milching, Milking, Milking, Marching Millions. I don't know. I've seen like a whole bunch of different names for but we're going to go with the million person march on wednesday taking place at 9 a.m across the country in cities from london to ottawa to calgary to toronto to Kelowna to chatham to i think kamloops has one as well and at its core it is a protest for parental rights people are going to be pulling their kids out of school and as a result it's a little bit interesting to see how many of the unions have decided to get up in arms about this and start pushing back. You may have seen circulating on social media, there was a Zoom call that took place over the weekend in which uh, several union reps from QP Ontario, the Ontario Federation of Labour, the Canadian Labour Congress, all got together to put their heads together, such as they are, and come up with ways to push back against this. As one trans activist said, they want to stop it dead in its tracks. Now, this call leaked and everyone's like talking about it as though it's some big, huge bombshell. I mean, the reality is they wanted people to be involved. They wanted this thing to be seen. They not, they're not talking about anything that you didn't already know they were talking about. But the thing is, they believe there is a pressing crisis afoot right now. They believe it is a crisis of hate, that there is hate, 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 hate going on, and that it is the parental rights movement that is the great purveyor of hatred. And it was an interesting little thing to see. This is Patty Coates, who was one of the union organizers outlining why they were having this rapid response call. To kick us off, I'm going to turn it over to OFL President Patty Coates for a welcome and uh, a land acknowledgement. Patty. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I want to thank everyone uh, for being here on uh, such short notice. Uh, as you saw from our uh, memo that we sent out, there's a number of uh, uh, protest events that are taking place all across Canada. Uh, we can't just let this um, be idle. Uh, we need to be able to organize. We need to connect with our communities um, in Ontario. Um, from what I know, there's approximately 22 um, uh, different uh, events that are taking place, and there could be more now. <clears throat> but as um, as allies and those that protect uh, workers' rights, protect our kids' rights, uh, and the rights of trans and our 2SLGBTQ plus community, uh, we felt it very important that we do come together to fight against the rise of hate. And we're seeing it in province across province across province. We're seeing it now in our education system with our premier uh, and education uh, minister has put forward with regards to um, the obligations of, uh, of teachers and school boards, educators and school boards. Uh, and so that's why we're here. We're trying to, uh, to connect with all of you to talk about what's happening in our communities and what we can do as allies and supporters uh, to fight against the hate uh, within our communities. 
I should have poured a bunch of shots and we could have all done a drinking game that you could play along with at home. It's one o'clock. I'm sure it's, you know, five o'clock somewhere, of course. Actually, it's not really five o'clock anywhere. It's five o'clock like over the Atlantic, but uh, it's six o'clock in the United Kingdom right now. So there we go. The Then every time they say the word hate, you could have just taken a shot and you actually would have been just passed out drunk already after that two minute clip. Yeah, uh, poor Sean. He says he was doing the drinking game and he's already too drunk to continue the show. So if the remaining clips don't fire, it's because Sean was doing doing the drink every time they say hate. Uh, and then we have uh, Shawnee Paul or uh, Chandra Lee Paul, who I, I don't know the affiliation or title, uh, who weighed in as well. And again, talks about coordinated hate. This is scary. I'll be honest with you as a, as a uh, member who is a out proud queer individual and activist who's been doing this work for geez, over 30 years now. Um, it is in my experience, my personal experience, the first of this kind that I've seen here in Canada of this super broadly and coordinated um, hate right across the country of this kind. Um, it, uh, we are seeing a, uh, a set of protests that are all being done simultaneously. Uh, they're all being set for 9 a.m. in each of their time zones uh, in every single province of this country in multiple states of these provinces and it is really scary it is extremely similar uh as to what has been happening in the u.s and we are very very worried about what could be coming next um i am zooming in from Takaranto, uh otherwise known as toronto the, the place in the water where the trees are standing and uh, I'm, I'm extremely worried about what's coming our way. And so what, what we're seeing is um, a, a, a far-right extreme response to uh, inclusive education. Ooh, a far-right extreme response. That is in addition to the coordinated hate. Now, let's not mince words here. What we're talking about are parental rights. The protests have been for parents to have more oversight and authority, as they've always had and as they're supposed to have, over their children's education. They're not resisting inclusive education. They're not resisting the fact that trans people are going to be taught in schools, that gay people are going to be taught in schools, that they're going to be gay teachers and trans teachers. Uh, they're resisting the, I mean, look, most of the people on this call are teachers, and many of them, as you can see on the Zoom call, they all have the various pronouns in their bio. This is uh, already an inclusive education system as evidenced by all of these people on this call who work within the education system. That's the part here that I find so baffling is that they've already basically won. But when in New Brunswick, the premier says, you know what, if a, ch if a kid wants to change their gender and pronouns at school, uh, maybe we think parents should have a say in that and be able to consent and have to consent. And then similar pushes in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and finally in Ontario, the conservative government that conservatism forgot, uh, or that forgot conservatism, I guess, has also started talking about this with Doug Ford railing against indoctrination because it is a popular policy. Parents believe they should have autonomy over how their children are raised. That Parents are the first, best, and primary educators for their children. And it isn't just about a disagreement. Oh, we, we disagree on this part of it. They actually despise 
They despise the very people who are raising these issues, who are planning to protest on Wednesday. This is a clip from Emily Quayle. Now, she's been a, an activist and organizer in Ottawa. She's not a, a teacher, but she's a, a graduate student, I believe, at Carleton, and that's why she's a member of CUPE. And just listen to her rhetoric about the protesters that believe in parental rights. The fascists are organizing in the streets. Um, I'm a researcher uh, at Carleton, and my focus is fascism in Canada and the signs that I've seen that were rising that this is far more than just like a far right transphobic protest. They are fundamentally racist. They're fundamentally anti-union. They are fundamentally queer and transphobic. And it's just a matter of time before they come to us. And the only way, the best way that the fascists have been stopped in the last hundred years has been when we unite in massive numbers in the streets. They're fascists. They're fascists. They're racist. They're fundamentally transphobic. Now, I actually, they're fundamentally racist, she said. Now, I actually interviewed a couple of the fundamentally racist organizers of this protest a couple of weeks ago. Sean, do we have an image from that interview? Oh my goodness, look at how fundamentally racist they look. That's the fundamentally racist Camille Al-Sheikh and the fundamentally racist Bahira Abdul Salam. You can see they're just uh, white supremacists, the kind that are Middle Eastern and wear a hijab, that kind of white supremacist. You may not be familiar with them, but according to the great uh, union activists, these are racist white supremacists because how else could they ever be engaged in the dialogue around parental rights? And it was interesting. One of the speakers actually spoke about the need to stand up against oppression in the same way that they stand up against like anti-Muslim oppression. And I'm like, you guys are the ones oppressing the Muslims right now. Because when the Muslim families get up and say, ah, you know what, we love tolerance and diversity and all of that, but maybe we're not too keen on this gender stuff in schools. Now, all of a sudden they're lumped in. I mean, the Muslim community must be very confused right now. These people that were welcomed with open arms by Justin Trudeau seven years ago and now are being denigrated as like white supremacists and they're like is this like a mistranslation no these people are just absolute lunatics that's all that's going on here and if you look at this I'll share one more clip for you because it explains why they're so scared. I mean, th this whole crisis call that these union folks had, a uh, hundred and some odd people gathering. I mean, when union people gather on a weekend, you know, you know, it must be serious business because, well, anyway, you get the joke. But uh, this is Vicki Smallman who talks about why it is that they're so worried. And the disturbing thing I have to say about all of this is while it's really easy to sort of say, well, these are fringe voices, these are, you know, the, the convoy, you know, writ large, etc. All of it is being validated and platformed and echoed by provincial governments and by the federal conservative party, right? Which offers a bit of a legitimacy and they have decided that it is politically expedient to essentially throw trans kids, families, queer families, queer people, queer workers, kids under the bus in order to win votes. I mean, we see in Manitoba right now actual bus ads from conservative candidates because they're in a provincial uh, uh, election using parents' rights rhetoric as the hook. It's really crappy. 
Now, I'm not one of these people that believes that the popular is always the right. I, you know, something can be popular and wrong. Vaccine mandates are a great example of that. But uh, there's a, a little bit of an interesting takeaway in what she's saying, which is that they're concerned by how many people disagree with them. They're concerned by how many people are taking up the mantle of parental rights. They're concerned about how common these views are that they're railing against and going to the walls for. And if you look at some of the rhetoric that you've been getting from the NDP, in all honesty, it's actually quite baffling. These people, the hill they're prepared to die on is sex changes for children, which is why the rhetoric against the conservative convention and the policy resolution opposing gender affirming care, as they call it for children, was so unhinged. And in this particular case, uh, we're not even talking about anything that is out of the norm of what parents expect. And it's not just conservative, far right, white supremacist, racist. It's just normal parents that want to have some level of oversight on what their children are being taught and more importantly, how it's being taught. And when you see a group that includes a lot of teachers gathering together and they're so offended, so offended that parents may want to exercise more authority over educating than they do, that should be a huge red flag. Why do these people think they deserve that much power over what happens with your kids in the classroom? And that, I think, is the, the problem here. Now, uh, one thing I'll, I'll point out, just on a lighter note, before we go to our next guest here, our first guest, I guess, is also our next guest, is that uh, all, I mean, this is, I'm just, this is indulgent on my part, so you'll have to bear with me, but uh, we've all had to deal with the land acknowledgements, which are supposed to be a part of truth and reconciliation. At union events, I learned that the land acknowledgement is like half of the meeting. Take a look. So um, with that, I'm going to uh, go to, uh, to the land acknowledgement um, and then I will pass it back so we can uh, uh, start um, our conversations. Today, because we are joining this meeting from places across indig Indigenous territory, I'd like to begin this acknowledgement by honoring the lands each of us are on, which has been the site of human activity since time immemorial. It is the traditional territory of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples from across Turtle Island. I'm attending this meeting from Innisfil in the community of Alcona, which is the traditional land of the Anishinaabeg people. The Anishinaabeg include the Ojibwe, uh, Ottawa, and pa uh, Potawatomi nations, collectively known as the Council of Three Fires. Please share in the chat. Uh, the Indigenous territories that you are joining this meeting from. But as we gather here today, uh, these nations continue to experience ongoing colonialization and displacement where land acknowledgements are offered in place of land itself. This territory is part of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum, a treaty made between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee, where nations entered into an agreement to protect the land and responsibly care for its resources in harmony together. And I think, you know, that's all very fitting because we all need to be working in harmony as we move forward. And as we know, you know, our Indigenous the indigenous um, peoples are have been um, have been oppressed for uh, years and years, a millennium you know, uh, in time, and we're seeing that oppression again with two-spirited uh, people with our two SLGBTQ um, communities. So coming together uh, at a meeting like this, I think, is is very important. And 
and uh, we're very appreciative of the treaties that are on our lands, uh, the treaties that we should all be following, uh, and that we all become uh, uh, stewards uh, of our land. So with that, I'm going to pass it over back over to Rob, and uh, we'll... Uh, that was the longest land acknowledgement I've ever... I mean, the land acknowledgement lasted longer than Confederation has, basically, up to that point, uh, which is uh, particularly odd, because I, I kind of thought at virtual events you didn't have to do the land acknowledgement because you're all gathered, but uh, the loophole there to the Ontario Federation of Labour is everyone has to do their own land acknowledgement in the comment section. So for like the next... If you watch the video for the next half hour, the chat is just like popping up with everyone's land acknowledgement when they've already like moved on like seven topics by then. So uh, the reason I poke fun of those, because they're all just theatrical. I mean, they, they all cloak themselves in this language uh, that has nothing to do with any real problems that exist in the world. And even Indigenous people are often the ones who uh, call these things empty words more than anything else. But uh, to talk about the more serious point here is that we have parents that are coming together and people in this country from all walks of life, all backgrounds, faith groups, in many cases, political groups. And to these union activists, it's just a far-right convoy 2.0, white supremacist. And at its core, what is it that is being debated? I'm not saying there aren't different belief systems that exist and different goals and all of that, but for the most part, the call is we want the schools to back off on the aggressive teaching of gender ideology in classes. We want this to be something where parents have the right to tell kids these are contentious issues. There is debate in the medical community, debate in academia, academia debate in the law. So the idea that teachers should be able to just take this very uber-progressive, pro-gender ideology position and teach it in schools without parents having a say is fundamentally wrong. That is what's being discussed here. It's not anti-inclusion. It's pro-parental rights. It's that simple. Uh, Jack Fonseca is the political operations director for the Campaign Life Coalition, which has been a supporter of this uh, big event coming up, and he joins me now. Uh, Jack, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, just to, to back up here for a moment, I mentioned earlier in passing the Conservative Convention, which uh, I timed very well with this march we have coming up. And, and a lot of the response we saw to those anti-gender ideology motions being passed were, were just hysterical from people. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it came from the left, from the far left, uh, the media and uh, and uh, some LGBTQ2S plus activists but uh, essentially, uh, what those two motions uh, consisted of uh, that passed, or those two policy resolutions, I should say, which are now official Conservative Party policy and passed by a very large majority, was that uh, the first one was that uh, uh, basically that uh, the Conservative Party uh, opposes uh, sex changes for children under the age of 18, um, that, that we oppose uh, uh, chemical or surgical mutilation of, of children under the age of 18. And that's just common sense. I mean, kids under 18 can't get a, a tattoo without the uh, uh, consent of their parents. They can't drive. They can't have sex. They can't get married. Um, you know, so all of this makes sense. Why it would be controversial to anybody to say that a child who's whose brain, the prefrontal cortex that's responsible for making decisions uh, which doesn't develop until the early 20s uh, uh, for, for human beings, um, why they should be allowed to, to make a decision to cut off uh, perfectly healthy body parts 
or to take puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones that are have irreversible damaging effects to the body, it's crazy. It's crazy that anyone would say, yeah, yeah, that should be totally permitted. And then the other... Uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to add to that point. And, and we have people that are part of this growing, and it's quite a heartbreaking group called detransitioners, people that have gone through this because they had enthusiastic doctors or parents when they were children and have lived to regret it because this thing that was driving it was a, a sense they outgrew when they did reach maturity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the science has always backed that up. Even the uh, American Psychiatric Association, the, in the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, admits that ch if children are just left alone, they, um, by the time they, they enter into, uh, into uh, adolescence, they will have 88% uh, of, I believe it was 88% of boys or 88% of girls and up to 95% of boys will no longer uh, persist in the, in the uh, belief or the concern that they're of the opposite sex, that they will outgrow that, mm. that uh, sexual confusion. And that's if we just leave them alone. And that's from the, uh, the American Psychiatric Association. So this is fact, this is real science. And what uh, the gender activists, the transgender activists are throwing at our children, indoctrinating kids in the schools, right in the classroom, as young as kindergarten, five years old, it's absolutely criminal. It is child abuse telling them that uh, they might be the opposite sex, that they might be trapped in the wrong body, and that they need uh, medical or surgical interventions um, to, uh, to, to be fully human or to be fully who they are. That is just child abuse. It's crazy. To fast forward to the march this week, you have communities across the country. It started with a couple of Muslim organizers, but they were very clear they wanted evangelicals and Catholics and atheists and Jews and, and anyone that believes in this core message here. You know, I think for me at its core is that these are very live issues. The fact that it was being debated at the conservative convention, the fact that there is debate in the medical community suggests that we're not at the point where we have this universally accepted approach to this issue that can be taught to children in the same way that, you know, one plus one equals two or the alphabet starts with A and, and goes to Z can be, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, I'm, and this, you know, the fact that there, that this march is happening with uh, close to 100 locations, perhaps it's surpassed 100 locations by now, in I, I believe it's all of the provinces and uh, one of the territories, um, and this is going to be huge across the country, it demonstrates that no, the average Canadian, and especially parents, um, don't agree. The, the consensus is not settled by any means, and in fact, it's rejected. The, the, the uh, notion that uh, children uh, can declare themselves to be the opposite sex, opposite from their biological reality, it is rejected by parents. And that's going to be borne out in this, uh, in this protest um, across the country on Wednesday. I don't know if you saw that whole union confab that took place in which all of these labor people got together. I mean, the, the level of venom they have towards uh, parents, really, is what it comes down to. It was quite astonishing, not all that surprising. And again, I don't want to say this is representative of all teachers, but uh, many of these people are teachers. And, and you know, I really asked the question of why should we not be calling them out? And why are more people not calling them out for believing that they should be the ones that make these decisions? Because that's really what they're saying. They're saying they know better than parents. Yeah. Yeah. You know, schools have become toxic. The truth is the reality of the matter is that our public education system, both public schools and Catholic schools too, uh, that are government run have become indoctrination centers. They're brainwashing centers. They're run by Marxists. 
uh, most of these, you know, there are some good teachers. I, I know I talk to them uh, privately, the, the, uh, the minority of good teachers who don't agree with what's being with the brainwashing that's happening in the schools. And they feel alone and they feel, gosh, if I speak out uh, against this uh, anti-scientific uh, nonsense, I'm going to be fired. I'm going to be disciplined. Um, but but the problem is that the Marxists who run the uh, the colleges that teach the teachers, they are Marxists. Uh, they want to uh, fundamentally, they want to undermine Western society, which is uh, uh, built on Judeo-Christian uh, uh, beliefs, and they uh, even want to undermine um, science <laughs> and 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 uh, the belief in truth and reality because it serves the Marxist agenda. And unfortunately, you've got young teachers now, the ones who who get uh, uh, taught at these teachers' colleges are indoctrinated with this ideology, this transgender and, and gender fluidity, mm -hmm. all of this ideology. They're, they're brainwashed to believe that it's human rights, that they're fighting for civil rights. Uh, somehow, if they're teaching this in the, in the classroom and hiding it from parents, if they're actually helping children to impersonate the opposite sex and, and use opposite sex names and hide it from the parents, these teachers are, are being taught that uh, they're doing something good, that they're, they're actually being... Uh, uh, good people and good teachers. And the opposite is true that what they're doing is they're participating in child abuse. And the reality is, if you if you look at uh, what transitioning at school leads to, uh, where, you know, teachers are saying, yeah, OK, we'll hide it from the parents. We'll we'll uh, we'll let Johnny call himself Susie and uh, and at school and, and live a double life that's separate to the life that they that he lives at at home. Um, what they're doing is putting children on the path to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and for many of them, um, gender mutilation surgery, the, the amputation of perfectly healthy body parts. And I don't want to skip over the dangers and harms of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. These are not harmless, uh, you know, like taking an Advil. Puberty blockers are extremely dangerous. They're very harmful. Um, they make bones brittle. They bring on osteoporosis. Uh, they stunt the growth of children. Uh, they, uh, there's many, many studies that uh, uh, have shown that uh, they produce infertility, so sterilization. Can a child at 10 or 11 or 12 years old when puberty blockers are typically given, can they truly understand the decision to become permanently sterile, to never be able to have children? Of course not, of course not. And um, you know, Dr. John Whitehall, a, a, a professor in pediatrics at uh, Western Sydney University in Australia, um, he 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 has cited from his research that while on puberty blockers, quote, the volume of the brain decreases at 10 times faster than the aging process, end quote. Mm. So you think about that. We're putting kids on puberty blockers, which causes the volume of their brains to decrease 10 times faster than the natural aging process. And then the next step is uh, is um, uh, uh, hormone therapy, cross-sex hormones. And, you know, that is linked to uh, all kinds of cancers, um, you know, cancer of the breast, prostate, um, ovaries, uh, the vagina, um, uh, uh, cardiovascular uh, problems. You know, this is, it, it's really butchery of children. This is child abuse. It's inhuman. And, uh, and, and this is why parents are coming out of the woodwork and joining this uh, Million March for Children to, uh, to protest this, this form of child abuse that uh, is happening right in our schools. And, uh, and which one are, are you, which one are you going to be at Jack? Um, I, I think I'm going to be at the uh, possibly the Kitchener one. 
Okay, wonderful. Well, they're all over the place. I I was seeing this morning on the website, I was looking at the list of them. And I think like, as I refreshed the page 10 minutes later, they had added another one or two of these. So it's going to be large. I know they were using the term million. I don't know if it's going to be a million people. But certainly, if you look at the polling that's been done on this, uh, it's a majority of parents that I think fundamentally align with the policy we're seeing in New Brunswick that we're hearing discussed in Ontario that Manitoba and Saskatchewan are talking about. So uh, definitely, this is not the fringe minority, as uh, Justin Trudeau and some of those union folks would have said. Uh, Jack Fonseca is the political operations director with the Campaign Life Coalition. Good to talk to you, Jack. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. All right, we'll have a little bit more on this tomorrow and a bit of a postmortem on Wednesday. Uh, Some of the marches are going to be going uh, probably still while we're on air on Wednesday. So we'll try to get some of the early footage and talk about that. I won't be out there because I have to be back at the show, so I won't be covering it on the ground. I do want to turn to bread, though. I was trying to think of like a witty witty transition. Well, transition, there we go. Uh, We'll transition to bread. There we go. It wasn't like a segue about yeast or dough or anything like that. I was trying to come up with like a clever one, but I, I couldn't in the uh, the interim. But uh, we will talk about the grocery crisis. Now, you already know as Canadians that there is a crisis at the grocery stores. You go like we all do. You see, you see the prices on the shelves. You know how they've been going up and up and up. And uh, the government has seen its poll numbers go down, down, down. So the result is simply that, uh, oh, well, uh, 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 we have to find a new bogeyman. So the federal government did the big tough thing. They've summoned all of the grocery executives to Ottawa for a finger wagging, which is taking place right now, believe it or not. About 30 minutes ago, uh, they all started walking in and uh, the media was trying to get them. And oddly, the grocery companies were doing this all wrong. They should have been coming out and chatting with reporters and saying, yeah, this is terrible. We hate this. You should know about all the costs we have to deal with and the carbon tax. But instead, uh, one guy, the head of Costco says no comment. Galen Weston of Loblaw just walks by silently. There was a guy from Metro that stopped and chatted for a little bit and just said, oh, I'm looking forward to a good meeting and an exchange of ideas. Uh, The head of Sobeys, I don't think, said anything. So these people are letting themselves be portrayed as the villains here, which is what the government wants. This is what Justin Trudeau said when he announced this uh, grand summons. It's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. So Minister Champagne will be calling on the heads of large grocers to come to Ottawa with a plan to address the rising cost of food. And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. And it- And let me be very clear, if their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. It is not acceptable. It is not acceptable and we will not stand. Oh, 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 well done, sir. Well done. He offered nothing. He said it's terrible and we're bringing them here. It is, that is unacceptable.
It is unacceptable. I'm doing my, I can't do it because I, every time I uh, do a Justin Trudeau impersonation, I can like just feel the testosterone seeping out and try, I don't think I have that much to begin with, to be honest. But uh, in any case, we are looking at the uh, landscape here. He's promising unspecified tax measures, tax measures. So just like, just think about that for more than five seconds here. What are those, un, like, what are those tax measures? Are you going to tax groceries to make groceries cheaper? No, you're going to tax grocery stores. And what are grocery stores going to do when they have this extra burden that they have to spend on their taxes? They're probably going to pass it on to their consumers. I, like, it's easy to look at the corporations and be like, oh, the big profits are scary and evil and all of that. But if you look at the overhead, that any business in Canada operating needs to contend with, certainly grocery stores, uh, you are going to see they're dealing with inflationary pressures as well. And they're entitled to make a profit because they are private companies. So the NDP plan, if you look at Jagmeet Singh's proposed law here, is basically that we need to ban grocery store profits and ban price gouging and price fixing. Oh yeah, those things are already illegal. So your, thing, your, your proposal to ban price fixing to lower groceries is not going to do anything. You know what they're not talking about? Getting rid of the carbon tax. Maybe they should be. Chris Sims is the uh, Alberta director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and our regular Monday contributor starting last week. It's good to have you back, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for having us on. Uh, so, I mean, the elephant in the room here, like the one thing the government is doing, like you, you can't control what Galen Weston does and what all these other no-name, uh, no pun intended, what these <laughs> no-name uh, grocery executives do, but you can control what you as the government of Canada do. And hey, you've got this big giant thing that everyone agrees is driving up the cost of groceries. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was watching that press conference last week and just wanting to bang my head against the steering wheel as I was listening to it. Um, Prime Minister, the call is coming from inside the house. Okay, this is on you. Your carbon tax is making groceries cost more. And to break that down, a lot of people will say, oh, well, farmers get an exemption. Yes, they do for their vehicles, but they don't for their barns or for grain drying, okay? So the very, the parliamentary budget officer themselves has explained that the carbon tax is going to cost Canadian farmers around a billion dollars extra between now and 2030. So within the next seven years, Andrew, that's an extra billion dollars of cost. And that's because of course, they use natural gas and propane to dry their grain. They also use natural gas and propane to heat their barns. So all those chickens and pigs and cows that need to survive the Canadian winter, guess what? They live in heated barns and we eat and use them all the time. And then of course it's the truckers who are bringing the groceries from the farm to the stores. And then it's the stores themselves that have to keep the lights on and quite often that's using natural gas. And so, it's very clear that the carbon tax, Trudeau's carbon tax, makes stuff cost more, including groceries. And to hear him float this idea of a tax measure is just mind boggling because 
taxes make things cost more. And this reminds me, that was that old Reagan quote, remember? What is it? If it moves, tax it. If it stops moving, regulate it. Like If it stops moving, subsidize it. And I think right. if it keeps moving, regulate, <laughs> regulate it, I believe. It. Exactly. Like there are some ideological politicians that just think more government is the answer. And in this yeah. case, it just certainly is not. Yeah. And look, I'm not going to look at Galen Weston and say that he is lily white in this. Uh, I mean, a lot of corporate executives have to be very ruthless and uh, they are making a lot of money on this, but they're also doing what the system requires and allows, which is to make money. And the profits have not actually increased as much as the government likes to claim that it is, because the reality is it's their costs as well that are increasing. They're dealing with any inflationary pressures that exist outside of the grocery stores. It's not like everything has stayed the same and then boom the retail cost has been jacked up because of inflation exactly there's no magical supplier that these people are using okay we all get them from the same sources and from the same places they don't have an inflation-free store that uh, these planners and these folks get to go to and yeah like think about it what we just watched was a handful of people go into a building are we really to believe that it's these handful of people that are maniacally making food cost more? Like, are we older than 12 years old? We all know how these systems work, or at least we should. And the idea that we have a government now that's been in power for eight years, and by the way, they've got ministers, they've got deputy ministers, they've got staff who are supposed to know the basic economics of this stuff, for them to turn around and just use this as a scapegoat when it's they who are largely causing this problem also due to inflation because they've been printing money. Remember, mm -hmm. the Trudeau government printed $300 billion out of thin air. That is going to make inflation much, much worse, which of course increases the cost of food. And so we can all see them. We should all know this. I just. It reminds me of Dr. Thomas Sowell, who, by the way, is still with us. He's 93, Andrew, mm -hmm. and just put out his latest book. He recommends asking three questions of a politician or bureaucrat who comes up with a great new idea, like a grocery tax or regulating the price of groceries. He says you should ask three questions. You should ask at what cost compared to what and what evidence do you have? This fails on all three of those questions. We've heard some ridiculous ideas that are likely to be bandied about by the government because they're going to grocery stores and saying, you need to come up with a solution by Thanksgiving. So they, they should basically just announce a sale on turkeys and say, that's our plan. We've marked down turkeys 20% so Canadians can have their Thanksgiving dinner and then tell the government to uh, pound salt. I mean, a pound of salt might be too expensive now. But <laughs> the thing that I would point out is that there are going to be ridiculous ideas like Jugmeet Singh's whole thing of pass a law to lower prices. You, you basically have to either legally cap prices, which does not solve the problem at all, and or you have to do something insane like nationalizing a grocery store or uh, creating a national one, like basically just bringing back the bread line. You know, it's been out of vogue for the last 30 years, but we can bring back uh, the bread line. The Soviets have nothing on Trudeau's Canada. Like, I don't know what other options are on the table, really. I've heard that language and it's scary. It's scary. They shouldn't even be thinking about those sorts of things. Ask anyone who lived in the Soviet Union or in one of those Eastern Bloc countries what it's like 
to line up for onions and bread. I have a friend who lived in the Soviet Union and they used to take a train for nine hours in one direction with these large oilcloth sacks on their backs, Andrew, to gather sausages because they were so salty and so full of spices that they wouldn't have to be refrigerated. They had to do this just to get meat. This was in the 80s. <laughs> this was not back in the 1950s. Yeah. And this is because they were controlling the price of food. We, we mustn't do this. Just to give people an example, think of what the government controls in your life right now. The healthcare system, the passport office, things called Service Canada, et cetera. Do you get awesome prices and great service? at those places? No. Well, you probably don't want them controlling the cost and price of your food and the stores where you can buy your food. That's a really bad idea. And a grocery tax is a super bad idea. What needs to happen here is the government needs to climb down. They need to realize, okay, we had the best of intentions to help the environment or give them whatever out they need, but it isn't working. We realize now, we didn't mean to, we realize now we're making food costs go up. So we're going to scrap these carbon taxes and use technology to help clean the air and help the environment. That's what needs to happen here. Egos need to be checked and they need to make a better decision. We've spoken about the carbon tax, which is obviously a big one. The other one that no political party in Canada will touch is supply management, which I know tends to anger my rural Ontario audience, but uh, I'm sorry, generally speaking, no one outside of uh, dairy farmers supports supply management. Canadians have to pay for it. It is something that the government would have to deal with the transition of pretty significantly. You have to buy back uh, quota that, ha that farmers have in, in good faith purchased and spent a lot of money on. But also this is driving up the cost very much in a very easily calculated way of milk, of eggs, of you know, poultry to some extent. Like, and, and this is something the government could do. And to be honest, I'm actually amazed the liberals have not taken up the supply management cause because for them, they don't really lose votes like the conservatives do. Because let's face it, they're not winning in farm country as it is. That's a great point. And anytime you start getting into people's food and how it is supplied and what kind of food they can get here in Canada, you get into some really choppy waters. I'll put it this way. This government doesn't seem to do homework, complexity and nuance well. They just seem to kind of reach for goals that they think are attainable and all that stuff in the middle is just going to take care of itself. If you started looking at something as heavy and complex and long lasting as supply management, you're going to have your best and brightest in the room and it's going to take years. I don't see that happening with this government. It's more like you said at the top of this, the easy bogeyman, the easy photo op. And yeah, to your point, folks, if you're running a massive corporation like a major grocery store chain, you need to get some media training because oh yeah no if you saw that like they 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 blew this they they should have been the nice guys and been like yeah this is we agree this is terrible you should know all the things that we're doing and this is what we need the government to do instead when they just walk by without blinking it like it lets the government framing of them stick
Yeah, it makes them look like the bad guy. And hey, I'm not a grocery expert. I don't work for a grocery store, but I am pretty good at media. And you shouldn't do that. You should be more open. You should be more forthright. You should say something like, I last saw an economist say that the grocery portion, the grocery portion, mind you, of their profit is around 3%. So not including the add-ons like the frying pan that you're impulse buying because you forgot to get some earlier or the pharmacy element, just the groceries. They should have had a really easy stat like that, like 3%, right on the top of their head and say, you know what, we're here to help. We're making about this amount, but we're going to listen real hard. And, you know, we'll let you know how it goes. That took 15 seconds. Yeah, no, very well said. Chris Sims, Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always good to talk to you. We will see you next Monday. You betcha. All right. Thanks very much. That does it for us for today. We'll be back in just, uh, what, I don't know, 23 hours and 15 minutes with more of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. Make sure to check out donate.tnc.news if you are minded to support independent media. And if you are in Alberta or you are willing to travel to have a good time, we are hosting our first ever live in-person event on Saturday, October 21st in Calgary. It is called True North Nation. I'm going to be there. Rupa Subramanya is going to be there. Harrison Faulkner, Rachel Emanuel, and some other special guests still to be announced. You won't want to miss that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if it works, we will do it again, hopefully in a city near you. But if it doesn't work, you'll have wanted to be at this one uh, just so you had your chance and didn't miss it. But I hope to see you there. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.